Welcome, podcasters, to episode nine of Cousins on Cinema. This is a podcast hosted by myself, Michael Kenny, and my co-host, John Salem, where we discuss one of our shared interests, film. We analyze films to see the, go- the good and the not-so-good parts of the ones that we love. Without further ado, what's on the agenda for today, John? Well, Mike, today we're going to be taking a look at The Shawshank Redemption, which is a 1994 American drama film written and directed by Frank Darabont. And it's based on the 1982 Stephen King novella slash short story, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. Before we get into this, um, I would like to, I, I find it interesting. Stephen King is, of course, a historically terrific American writer. He's far and away the most adapted writer when it comes to movies. I believe he's had 31 of his works adapted into screenplays. And I believe the second living is sitting around 11, Nicholas Sparks. So far and away, I mean, he's famous for other such movies such as Cujo and The Shining and Carrie, um, less so for Maximum Overdrive. Um, Mm. He certainly had his whiffs and, but no... American author has been more adapted than him ever period. Um, and interesting, the, I just, the story of how this was adapted is interesting. He sold many of his stories for $1 to kind of up and coming filmmakers just to like have his stories adapted. He's been very good for cinema cinema in that way. Um, Darabont came, came to him with $5,000 to buy the rights for this King of course agreed and later returned the check framed, uncashed, with the kind of tagline, in case you ever need bail money, love, Steve. So it's interesting that, I mean, this is, I would, I don't think there's much of an argument. This is probably his best adapted film, and Stephen King didn't make a cent from it. He sold the rights for, for $5,000, and I'm sure with all the money he has, he couldn't care less. Um it's also interesting because this movie did not make a lot of money in theaters. It really only started making money when home video kind of saw a great uptick in the late nineties. And I think when watching this movie, you can kind of see why, because I think to a degree, while this movie was certainly made for theaters, it's the way it's shot. Isn't very cinematic, if that makes sense. In my opinion, while there are some terrific shots that are cinematic, I think very much the, story follows i'm sorry the cinematography follows the story rather than the story follows the cinematography what i mean by that is i just feel like it's a very objective shoot i don't think it try to tries to pull on heartstrings by like focusing on certain things i think it just shows what's happening on screen and that's kind of it and i think that's very much why this movie had such insane success in the home video Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned how it really didn't have much success when it came to the world of the movie theater back in 94. And I think a good reason for that is because of all the fantastic movies that came out in 94. Uh, We're talking about our Pulp Fictions, our Leon the Professionals, our uh, Natural Born Killers, our Lion Kings, and our Forrest Gumps. I mean, there were tons of great films in 1994, possibly one of the top 10 years when it comes to cinema altogether. Um, you mentioned that Stephen King has had quite a few adaptations, this being probably the most successful, maybe besides The Shining. Um, personally, I'd, I'd go with The Shawshank Redemption, but obviously Kubrick's The Shining is something completely different than the book, and it's it's spectacular in and of itself. Um, you mentioned that Darabont wrote the screenplay as well. That was, I mean, 
is a spectacular screenplay. I think he picked out some of the greatest lines in the whole in the whole book uh, that King wrote. Um, I don't really think that he missed a beat in the entire in the entire film. It's kind of it's kind of just it's it's fantastic. I mean, obviously, you mentioned King is one of the greatest American writers of all time. He's probably within the top ten to twenty American writers of all time just because he's pumped out great book after great book again and again. So. It's really no surprise that this screenplay is fantastic. You know, there's countless lines that we can go over that are probably, I mean, ingrained in our minds just in, in film history because it's just, it's become so popular and synonymous with being fantastic. Um, you mentioned the cinematography as well. I'd like to go over a little bit of the, cinem- the cinematography real quick. There is, it isn't completely cinematic throughout. However, there are, quite a few shots in the film where i thought wow this is this is spectacular this is kind of an epic shot um especially when they take that overhead shot of the prison when they're when we're approaching the prison um i believe right at the beginning is the most spectacular one overlooking the prison when morgan freeman's talking about or morgan freeman character red is talking about um how andy asked him for uh rita hayworth inside the prison and we have that overhead shot of the whole prison and it just looks fantastic um you know i think darabont did a fantastic job i I don't i don't really think that their cinematographer could have been any better none other than the great roger deakins you know he he's probably one of the greatest cinematographers of all time uh i i've never really seen many many uh cinematographers with better shots than he has perhaps besides kubrick the director himself but, you know, Deacons has come out with fantastic films. No Country for Old Men, The Assassination of Jesse James, Prisoners, Barton Finks, Cario, 1917, Blade Runner, 2049. So he's just, he's spectacular. I thought that a lot of this film was shot just almost too well. I couldn't really think that any, any shot in the film could be replaced by a different angle or something. I felt that every shot really immersed us into the, the whole spectacle and I, I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I know, I know the shot you're talking about, particularly when all, when all, when that gigantic mass of prisoners are going towards the front gate to meet the new fishes. I love, love, love when it's doing that rotating shot and it flaps by the main flag and you hear the flap of the flag. It just, it, it seems so organic and just, just cause it is a very, very majestic shot without a doubt. And I'm glad you brought up kind of the dialogue in this movie because it is, I think he does, he chooses the best lines from the novella slash book slash whatever you can call it, whatever you want. And it also incorporates his own. I mean, cause he did write the screenplay. It, it would certainly be unfair to say that he didn't, it's unfair to say it's, 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 a, it's not a mere adaptation though. It does very much. I thought it was funny. Um, this movie is around two hours, 20 minutes and the average reader would take around two hours and 20 minutes to read the book. So um, it's a short, it's a short novel, novella, and it's a long movie. So that, that is interesting. But I just like, I really enjoy the stuff that's not in the book. Like a, a scene that kind of stood out to me in this respect, um, when I believe he never actually gets a real name in, in the book. I, I'll just call him fat ass because that's what everybody calls him. When the fat prisoner is kind of breaking down, crying and Hadley, sorry, not Hadley. Yeah, Hadley, um, the, uh, I guess, what is his position? The chief of the guards is yeah. beating the hell out of him. 
um, he, he cries for his mother and a prisoner. He says, I need my want my mommy. And the other prisoner trips. And I had your mother last night. She wasn't that great. <laughs> yeah. I, heard that. I mean, it's funny. It's something you would expect from a prison. And I, I also love when, um, when Hadley says something along the lines of what in Christ's name is happening in here. And another pr- a prisoner says, he took Christ's name in vain. I'm telling the warden. And, uh, <laughs> like these lines, they're so funny. And it's really like, it re- it gives in it contrast the brutal beating that happens after that. And you see Haywood and Haywood's like, shut up, shut up. Cause he doesn't want the guy to get beat up, but my goodness. And, and Haywood and Hadley calls him, oh, is it? he calls him like a barrel full of monkey spunk, which, Oh my God. It's brutal, but it's just, it's, it's just perfect. Like these little lines that like, they just add so much, like it could have been Hadley just came in and beat the dude up and like, that was it. But everyone calling around and it really, it just feels so real. It feels like what a prison in the fifties would have been like, like people, you know, calling out an Italian guy, kind of drawing the chief of guards. And it's just, I don't know. I feel like these lines like that that are concurrent throughout the movie certainly not just the scene it's just i think it's the best example of it those lines in particular really give the prison itself a lot of character and i think really immerse the watcher in the movie yeah definitely um i mean obviously the heavy majority of the film's shot in the prison there's like probably 10 to maybe maybe 10 minutes altogether that's not shot in the prison um a little more on the um on the acting of um of freeman and um and tim robbins and a, a little bit on uh on mark rolston i thought that i i don't know if i've ever seen uh a more realistic adapt or i'm sorry a more realistic portrayal of a character than morgan freeman in this film um probably my second favorite from him is is seven with brad pitt the film the the film that was made the following year by fincher in 1995 but god his acting in this film was fantastic i thought that he did a spectacular job as red he's probably synonymous with red after after this film in a lot of respects because it's just there's just nobody else that could have done it honestly i mean there was there's nobody else besides morgan freeman that could have played that role and could have played it so genuine and just i don't know so so well as he did it um but Tim Robbins is Andy Dufresne. You know, Robbins wasn't really a huge actor before this. He was in Bull Durham in 1988, which was a huge break for him with Kevin Costner. Um, but besides that, there was there was kind of just the player in 92. And he really didn't have much before this. But this was a huge breakout role for him. You know, he, the main character, he's in practically every scene of the film, if not every single scene. So he just, he did absolutely amazing. He played this completely timid character who at the beginning, uh, Red said what a stiff, uh, strong breeze would blow him over. A strong wind would blow him over as you, as his character was walking into the prison. But I, I, again, cannot see anybody besides the six, five Robins playing <laughs> Andy Dufresne because he's just, he, he embodies Andy Dufresne. He's this tall, lanky guy who really, doesn't have much to him he's not he's not like some big dude you know he's he plays a very timid shy character that doesn't really do anything but kind of serves a purpose later on in his time in prison but you know his character is he succumbs to a lot of crap really early on you know he's 
he gets raped early on by the the group led by Mark Rolston's character Boz Boggs, uh, the group called the Sisters, who they they obviously go at him quite often, and it's it becomes hard to watch sometimes. But you know, Tim Robbins, he just he plays that character so well. He plays the character of being kind of scared. Um, he doesn't really have much confidence in himself, and you can see it just in his facial expressions. In his eyes, you can really see it. You know, you act with your eyes. As we discussed in the last in our last podcast about Scarface, you act with your eyes, and I think Tim Robbins did that fantastically throughout the throughout the course of the film as Annie Dufresne, and I think Morgan Freeman did just as well. You know, he he always kept a rather upbeat tone about him, unless something bad was going to happen, like when um when Brooks was leaving or something. You could see him acting with his eyes. You could see him his sadness or his uh, content, or you know, it was just his anger towards the, the the prison guards or whatever you can see that in his eyes he's just he's such a splendid actor as is tim robbins but who i want to talk about a little bit was mark rolston who did play boggs who was the the main oppressor of tim robinson's character andy you know he he leads the group of the guys who rape andy dufresne and god i've just i've never seen a character that i really hate more than Boggs in this film. You know, Mark Rolston does such a fantastic job in this role. He really makes you hate him so much. You know, he plays this gay-ish character. You know, Red's character always says that they're not they're not gay. They're just they're just inhuman, you know? They're they just have to horrible. be human first. Right, right. They're just horrible human beings that really don't even count qualify as human because they're just terrible, terrible beings. But Mark Rolston plays this so well. You know, I've never I've never seen someone do really portray a uh, a prison rapist as so scary and menacing. He's Rolston's more of a character actor. You know, he's in Aliens, Asylum, Lethal Weapon Two, stuff like that, The Departed. He's more of a character actor. He's kind of known for these sorts of roles. But God, he really did this in this like did his best in this role without a doubt i think that um the lines that he was given were fantastic you know he comes in he shoves uh andy's character into the uh, little tv sh- they're the movie showing room one time and he he says something along the lines of take a walk and the guy says but i have to change the reel and he said well i, I said get the fuck out or something like that to that nature and then he always he always acts like semi homosexual, semi flamboyant, but also just will beat the crap out of guys at the same time, which is it's very scary. But he did such a splendid job with this role. I again, I know I'm saying this over and over, but I really could not see anybody else in these roles. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you brought up the sisters who are they're certainly to a degree they're secondary they're secondary antagonists in both the novel and this because but honestly I think they were represent some of the these this <laughs> for Stephen King. It isn't a book or or film that has much horror in it. I think if any characters represent horror in this book, I would say it's the sisters and specifically first and foremost Boggs. And I like that that um the uh, the Dick's uh, the oral the attempted oral rape scene is and is it's in the novella as well, and it's very. It's very terrifying in the novella as well because you don't know what's going to happen. But and he takes out that blade and uh, Andy's 
response to that is, and they also add a line in this before he, he, he details what would happen if he puts his penis into his mouth, you're whatever you put in my mouth, you're going to lose. And hmm. if you, if you stick that in my head, I hear you have to open it with a crowbar and right. they add, they add a couple of, after the F in the book, it's just that, that Morgan Freeman goes into, they didn't whatever, whatever, but they add a couple of lines that I think really make tie the scene together. And it's, Rooster says, not Rooster, Bog says, oh, God, how the hell do you know that? And, and T-Mom says, I read it. Do you know how to read, you ignorant fuck? <laughs> he says, oh, honey, you shouldn't have. Right. It's terrifying, but it's, oh, God, it paints both of the characters. Because it's, honestly, it's a moment of strength for Andy. Because he's, I mean, he's at the mercy of these men. But at the same time, he maintains this, certainly intellectual edge. But also to a degree, like he maintains the moral high ground. He never, he never gives up. He never gives in. And I think they show that struggle against him terrifically. And one of my favorite shots in the movie, it's very, it's, it's, it's subtle. But when, oh, when, when Boggs goes into his, goes back into his um, cell and Halley's waiting there for him. (laughs) First of all, that's, oh, it's so good. Cause you want this guy to get to come up and but I don't think it's any. I don't, I don't think it's um, a coincidence that when he when he's trying to get away, what what is he's dragged back in and he's taken from behind and dragged back into his thing, yelling no no no. It's it's very it's reminiscent of what you would imagine some of his victims to be suffering when he would sexually assault them. And I don't think that's a coincidence whatsoever. It's just him getting his comeuppance. It's. One of the best things about this movie is that it explores so many aspects of the novel that because the novel is entirely from Red's point of view, and this certainly isn't entirely from Red's point of view. It flashes mm-hmm. back and forth between characters, which I think is honestly its strength because you see a bit more from you see more than Red would have heard from hearsay, basically. Like you see what Andy would have done, you understand him a bit more. And I think you honestly, because the book is honestly Red's story. And I think this movie is certainly Red's story. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the favorite things I think they do, and certainly part of it's Morgan Freeman's acting, but I love how they treat his parole um, cases because the first one, he's just going through the, he's just, well, not, he's not going through the motions. He's like trying to act like really sincere, like saying, oh, I'm no threat to anybody whatsoever. And then the second one, he's just going through the motions. He doesn't really care. And then the last one, it's, he recapitulates, Basically, what's the opening couple couple of lines from this actual book, but they turn it into this really great scene where he's, you know, he's done with this. Like he's he he hasn't necessarily maybe perhaps become institutionalized. And I don't think he's given up or like given been broken by the prison. He's just done trying to pretend like you don't want me rehabilitated. Like he understands that. He's like, why on earth would you put me in? You don't put men in Shawshank prison to be rehabilitated you put them in there to break them and he's basically saying you can't break me no matter what just write down whatever you want and that's ends up with gets him released funnily enough and i i just love and i you mentioned it already morgan freeman's performance is amazing i specifically love because the character in the book is irish that's why everybody calls him red and i love that scene with him when he's Tim, not Tim, uh, Andy asks, why do they call you red? He's like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm Irish. And obviously mm. it's a joke. But right. uh, it's just like that that little subtle callback. And like so many other things in this movie, I just think as much as, like I said, as much as it is Andy's story, because it is Andy's story, I think 
it's it's a story that very much centers around red as well. And I think you can see that how in and I, I I'll go on this later, but I think you can see that in the way they treat his character in this movie. Yeah, I liked how you mentioned early on um how Andy really got his moment of triumph when he basically told the told Boggs, like, hey, look, anything you put in my mouth, you're gonna fucking lose. Because, uh, you know, he's going to just bite down as hard as he can. And even if Box throws that blade in there, um, he's still going to bite down as, as hard as possible just because of the reflexes after hitting the, after hitting the brain. So um, I, I felt like the fact that that was his, uh, his moment of triumph and he still got the crap beaten out of him. He, he was damn close to death. He went to the hospital for I don't know how long. Um, and then Boggs got what a week in, in the, in the hole or something like that. And then we finally see some sort of decent, like decent retribution for, for the actions. Um, when, when Boggs returns to his cell and Hadley eventually beats the crap out of him. And then worse than, worse than even Andy was beat up over the past few years by Boggs and his, and his band of sisters. Um, you know, that was, it's just depressing that that was his really only moment of triumph. But yeah, I mean, Boggs was just a psychotic character. That was probably, probably the easiest part of the film was watching them pull him back into his cell to beat him up again. I don't think there were many super easy parts from the beginning where Andy's just drunk and he's looking like he's about to kill his wife and her lover. And then he obviously doesn't go on to do that. But then the the only the only uh, other easy part of the entire film is when Red meets Andy at the end when they when they both get out of Shawshank Andy by escaping, obviously, and Red because he's given his parole. Um, But it's just it, it does become a very depressing film when when Andy's getting the crap beaten out of him and even when he's not getting. Uh, raped or getting the crap beaten out of him or anything the guards are still giving him crap about certain things and really the warden gives him the worst crap you know the warden makes him his own personal helper um he really he really kind of takes advantage of andy and his knowledge of 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 economics and finances altogether but um it just it, it it's it's really a depressing tale for andy it's just there's no there's no happiness in his life. Even when he was married to his wife, there was no happiness. His wife said that she was glad that he knew. They finally knew that she was cheating on him for however long she was with this golf, this golfer. Um, but yeah, I, it's just, it, it becomes really depressing. Yeah, I would say that. I, although I would say, I think the film does really well of balancing the depressing moments with the moments of hope. I think moments such as like after Brooks was committed suicide and I'll get more into his character later right after that Andy gets his books and he gets like that's another moment of pretty big triumph after six years he finally gets the money he deserved to build this library up and he plays some of Brooks movie to everybody in the um in the prison and yeah he gets some time in the hole for it but you know he I feel like to a degree he kind of earned that like with all he's been doing for the warden and you know it's it was a really touching tribute to his lost friend and i guess this that, that, it kind of naturally leads me to the character of brooks he really isn't a character in 
the novella and honestly i think is one of the strongest additions to the movie not even entirely because of his relationship with andy but because of how compared to how easy the comparison is between him and red and it's clear in this movie um brooks their dialogue mirrors who they are mirrors red even says it himself he was somebody in here an educated man outside he couldn't even get a library card and you know the only reason why he feels so strongly about this, not the only reason, he, he cares about Brooks, of course, but he knows himself, he's somebody in there. He's the guy who can get you things. I mean, he says it to Andy. On the outside, he'd be replaced by the yellow pages. He's nobody. But it's just, it's 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 brutal thinking like that. Like, you, I mean, when if you leave society for 40 years and come back, like, that's insane. Like, what do you, like, like, Brooks is in there for 50 years. That's unfathomable for anybody. I think that's, probably the truest, like I already said, I am kind of contradicting myself. I think the truest horror in this movie is the idea that you can prefer prison life to being free, that being caged up can make you become reliant on the cage. And like Brad says, these bars are funny. At first you hate them, then you get used to them. And soon you can't live without them. And honestly, Brooks couldn't live without him. I mean, he was an old man and what he, he didn't have what Red had, which was hope which is given to him by Andy. And I know two of my favorite lines in the movie, um, Brooks says, Brooks writes down in his thing, I'm sure they won't kick up too big of a fuss about this over a bit old crook like me before he kills himself. But And then Red says, I'm sure they won't put any roadblocks out, not for an old crook like me. It's that difference. It's the difference between the two experiences. Brooks gives up. I mean, he kills himself. That That's the ultimate giving up. And Red's ideal is he's not giving up. You know, that kind of hope that stays with him. I mean, th- those last lines of the film, which are fantastic. You know, he never, that hope within him never dies. And that hope is, even if he doesn't want to admit it, I think the turning point for him is when he blows that one note in his harmonica and it fades to black. I think at that point, he's kind of changed forever by Andy's impact because like he says, hope is a dangerous thing. But Andy disagrees. Andy thinks that hope is believing that hope is dangerous is in a prison is exactly what the people who are imprisoning you want to do. They want mm-hmm. to make you reliant on the inside. And the only way you can beat them is by holding on to that hope. And so when you get out, you can keep on living your life as I think certainly Stephen King and Darabont believes that you should live your life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like Brooks's entire story is incredibly disappointing and incredibly depressing just because, like you said, on the inside, he's he's a learned man. He's a man that can that can do a lot for you. You know, you have, you have a question. You go to Brooks because he's an experienced elderly man that he's he's learned. He's read a lot um, like Andy in, in that sense. You know, he's he's a learned man. He knows what he's doing. But, you know, when he goes to the outside, what is he? He's a grocery clerk and he's a he's a subpar grocery clerk. He says his boss doesn't like him very much. He doesn't think, you know, he, we get maybe one or so scenes of Brooks in the grocery store bagging, bagging uh, groceries. And this woman complains to to his boss, who's right next to him and says, make sure your man double bags. He didn't double bag last time and all those groceries fell through and. The man's the the boss is like, make sure you double bag. And, you know, Brooks is standing right there. So he's clearly completely disrespected by these people, obviously, because he's a crook. He's a man that went to prison. So and spent his entire life in prison, practically 50 years or so. So 
you know, it, that's, that is very depressing. And I like the fact that you mentioned that, um, that when red gets out, he basically says the same thing, you know, and nobody's going to kick up much of a fuss, not over an old crook like me. Um, but this is what I was saying a little bit ago, just this, it's, it's all depressing. The whole thing is rather depressing. You know, Andy's in there for something that he didn't do. Red's in there for something that he did, but even his story's not very enjoyable because again, he can get you things on the inside, but once he's out, he's, he's out. He's, there's nothing that you can really do for you. He's, he doesn't really serve society a, a very big purpose. And, Neither does neither does Brooks. Brooks serves probably no purpose besides the fact that he can bag groceries at the local the local food mart or whatever. He's he's just an old crook. He's he went to jail for 50 years. He went to jail before cars were even commonplace on the street. So he just he he can definitely not adapt to the world around him when he gets out. When he gets out, he says the world got it when got itself in a big damn hurry. And that's the truth from, I mean, if he went to jail in what the tens and came out in, in the sixties or something, I mean, or the, or the, the went to jail before the tens and came out in the fifties. Good God. Yeah. The world changed a ton. It's nothing. It was nothing like it was back. Two in world 10. wars. Right. There's two world wars in between his time of going in and coming out of prison. So the entire world completely changed. Um, I don't know the first, I mean, obviously this is not my first time watching the film. This is probably like my fourth or something like that. So I don't know if the first time he got out of jail that I saw, I expected him to really do anything. I mean, as soon as I saw him walking down the street and the car basically about to run him over because he's crossing the street when it's, when it's clearly a green light for the, for the, for those cars. I, I felt like, oh, God, yeah, no, he's not going to serve any purpose in society. He's, I don't know what he's going to do, but he's not going to do anything good. And then minutes later, he goes on to kill himself. So that was that was really depressing. Um, but like I said, there's not really many easy scenes to watch. There's the, the scene at the very end. There is the scene of Boggs getting beaten up and getting driven away in basically an ambulance but not not a complete ambulance he's just getting driven to a low a minimum security prison where he can live out the rest of his days drinking out of a straw and there is the scene where there are maybe 10 or so prisoners uh, on top of the roof drinking the beers that that um andy acquired for all of them um but yeah overall the film isn't a happy film i mean there's not really a question about that it's not it's not an upbeat film at for any reason oh i'm sorry i missed one more scene it's when uh it's when andy is playing the music on the loudspeakers for the entire prison that's probably the the easiest most fun scene to watch but even at the end of that you know wow they're gonna beat the crap out of andy now he's gonna be screwed he's gonna be in the hole for a while because the warden's coming in and he's telling andy you know turn it off turn it off and then andy just turns the music up looks him in the eye and turns the music up completely disrespects him and then you see Hadley just knocking on the window saying, you're mine now. And, you know, it's a, it's a little sad because Hadley did help him out a little while back, you know, beat the crap out of Boggs after Boggs was raping and assaulting him. Um, but, you know, there, this, the film simply does not have that many fun, easygoing scenes. It's a pretty depressing, depressing tale. I'm, I don't expect much else from Stephen King, honestly, but, you know, the with the with the sh small amount of happy scenes that they made they did really well like i i thought that the screenplay was fantastic the music was used perfectly 
Um, but yeah, definitely a depressing tale. But yeah, poor poor Brooks really served zero purpose in society when he got out, and it is a really sad part. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder. It wouldn't be this movie is certainly not a feel good movie, but I don't know. I can see how you could certainly see this movie as depressing. I just think within the context of its ending, certainly one of the central themes of King's work in general are people get their comeuppance. And certainly in this movie, people get what's coming to them. War For the warden, it's he, warden honestly almost got off easy. He got off with killing himself. Um, Hadley goes to jail, uh, supposedly crying in the back of a van. I love that. That scene is absolutely Fantastic. And Andy gets what he deserves. You know, whatever crimes he committed, which were really none, he said he served his time and then some, and he escapes and he gets to live kind of his, he lives the life that's enough for him. It's enough for him to go down to Zanatuejo or whatever the place is and just relax and open this bar and do whatever it is he wants with his best friend, Red. And I think Yes, it is. Objectively, it is certainly a depressing movie. Objectively, men are deprived. He is deprived of years that are rightfully his for a crime he never committed. And he didn't deserve anything that really happened to him in prison. But I think really the central theme of this movie is certainly hope and kind of can, is it possible to have hope? I think many, many movies that try to further the idea of hope in any situation, it's like hope in wartime. Like, you're getting shot at. You're going to die any second now. Like, can you still have hope? And Frank, could Anne Frank still have hope on the cusp of death? This is a, this is a different kind of hope that you need to have because it's not a hope that you, you your hope you get out of this alive. Odds are you probably are going to eventually get out. It's just, can you still sustain hope knowing that your life is pretty much over and your life is just, it's not over because you're going to die. It's over because you just, living the same days over and over again. Can you find enough little pockets of hope in this misery? And honestly, without Andy, I think that question might be no, because it really doesn't seem like these guys have great lives or anybody has very much to live for whatsoever. But Andy, I mean, you see Tommy, who is a brutal character because Andy gives him all this hope. He gives him his, and that's like the crushing blow for him. That's that's the moment I think Andy knows he's got to get out. Like this prison is beyond redemption if you will it's it's not possible to redeem Shawshank and he he tried his best honestly he he made this library for people to get educated and he wanted you know he, he worked with the wardens he worked from the inside to help people out but because a guy was willing to testify for him he deserved to be killed for that and Andy decided that's just completely unfair and this place is just completely unfair and he just he needs to get out and he needs to beat this place. He he realized he cannot better this place from the inside out. He has to get out. That's the only way. He's done his time and then some. He's done what he can. Tommy getting killed was the last straw. Like that that speech with Red when you sort of thought he was gonna kill himself, but he obviously ended up escaping. It was the opposite of that. It's I mean, first of all, the score in that scene when the warden rips off the poster and discovers the tunnel is. Oh, it's fantastic. And finding out what happened and seeing it play out. And God, the, the the shots of him driving down Mexico in his own car with the top down. And obviously, like you mentioned before, that last shot with them, they're actually in the Virgin Islands is where they shot that. They shot most of the movie in Mansfield, Ohio, actually. 
I'm sure you know that, but it's just these little pockets of hope and just that ending of hope, not just for Andy, but for Red too. Red, a man who honestly, for all rights, should have gone the exact way Brooks did. He's a man who shouldn't have been able to adapt to the outside, shouldn't be able to do accomplish anything, but he looks into that window and he sees a gun, then he sees a compass. So those represent the two paths forward for him. Does he buy a gun and maybe kill himself or go back inside? Or does he grab that compass and look and look for the small amount of hope that Andy's given him that just kind of piles into more and more hope. And in the end, he chooses to choose the path of hope. And I think that is very much reflective of the theme of the movie. Yeah. I think the theme of the movie definitely is hope. You know, they want, they want to get out. They want to lead normal lives after they get out. But, you know, really it's, it's rather impossible after you get out of prison, especially once you've been there for 10, 20 years to lead a normal life. And once Andy's getting to his 20 or so years, you know, he's he's in there for a while. He knows once Tommy, Tommy's his last hope. Tommy's his last hope at all. There's there's really nothing there after Tommy that's going to really help him. You know, he's he's kind of just waiting to see if the warden's actually going to let Tommy testify in his favor. Um, Because Tommy obviously knows the truth. He knows that that Andy didn't kill anybody. But for some reason. When the warden finds out that Tommy's telling the truth, Tommy will testify under oath. Uh, he kills Tommy um, for for whatever reason. He doesn't want Andy to go. Maybe it's because he wants him to keep helping with his finances, which obviously Andy had. Um, Andy had. Uh, Andy had an ulterior motive. Obviously, when he was doing his finances, he was obviously making money for a ghost for somebody that did not exist, which was his alter ego essentially. Um, but you know, he, after, like you said, after Tommy died, he really just completely lost faith in the, in the system. Like just Shawshank seemed relentless and completely free of redemption. There's no way that anybody could go in and out. And even if they went out, they'd be going out at 40, 50 years, just like Brooks, just like red. And by then your life's stripped. Right early on, you see Red get turned down for parole right early in the film. And you see the picture that's used for Red. And it is an incredibly young man. You can tell that whatever age Red did his crime, he was a very young man. And they completely stripped his life away. You know, even though he was he's a guilty man, guys like guys like Andy were completely innocent. And he didn't do anything. The only thing he did was get drunk. And throw a gun into the water, which even so, it, it, it doesn't warrant his arrest. It doesn't warrant his conviction. And then, of course, when he goes to jail, he's still treated like crap. He's raped by these guys for years. And then when that finally stopped, he's forced to do every guard's taxes and do all of the warden's dirty work. And then like, and then when, um, when he finally gets his chance out through Tommy's... Uh, um, through Tommy possibly testifying eventually, the warden completely prevents that. And then Andy's like, look, if you let me out, I'm not going to tell anybody about the dirty work you make me pull or whatever. I'm not going to tell anybody about that. I just want to be out of here because I'm free. I didn't do anything. And there's proof that I didn't. This man would testify in front of a court that I didn't do this. But the warden still is like, oh, wow, now you're going to pull out that crap and throw it in my face. All right, you're in the hole now. And then once Andy's in the hole, just kills Tommy. So, you know, I, 
I really can't uh, stay away from this idea. This is just incredibly depressing. You know, Andy never gets a break in the entire film. He never gets a break. The only thing that he has, he does for himself, which is escape. And even then, he still had to have Red use post, like buy him posters and get him that that little thing that he was going to use to make the, his hole in his cell. But really, he does it all himself. He doesn't really have anybody's help besides that. And even then, he had Red do that years prior because Andy's the smartest guy in the entire prison. He's he, he knew what he was doing right when he got that stuff. So you know. It's just there's there's no hope for anybody in there. There's no hope for guys like Boggs because they're horrible human beings, which is why he gets the crap beaten out of him. There's no hope for Red, really, because he gets his life stripped away from him. Like, in the end, okay, yeah, he finds his way to the Virgin Islands with, with Andy. But really, what is he, 60 maybe, 70 years old? He doesn't have any more life ahead of him. He's pretty much done. So, yes, there is a heavy theme of hope, but I, I'd probably say – the the heaviest theme is that it, all hope is really lost. There really isn't any hope, even for Andy. You know, he's he's got that little fun that he made for himself. But how long is that going to last? Is that going to last the rest of his life, or is that going to last a few years? And he's going to have to make an honest living for himself somewhere else. Who knows? But either way, I think the 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 fact of the matter is none of these none of these characters will ever truly be free. And Brooks knew that he just killed himself because he gave up because he knew all hope was lost. Yeah, I, I can see that. It's definitely a legitimate interpretation. I, I suppose I would disagree to it a, a certain extent on how depressing the movie's overall outlook is, but certainly it is. It's not an overtly positive movie. I think you can read a lot into it. Um, I think if nothing else at all, the warden and Hadley get what's coming to them. Um, I, I love that one shot. Um, what is it? Um, his judgment cometh and right soon. And that, that that's fantastic. And then he opens the book and he says, Dear Warden, you were right. Salvation does lie within. And within that book is, of course, where he kept his rock hammer, which is what ends up saving him from staying in this prison. So it's not like he found salvation in the not in, in the Bible, but rather that he that's where he kept the thing that saved him. And while it is true that, yes, Andy had some absurdly rotten luck getting in here. I think one of the things that they don't capture quite as well as they ought to in the movie is kind of how good Andy's luck was with his escape attempt, because first of all, he needed to be in that specific cell to be able to tunnel out because otherwise he would just be tunneling into a different cell. He knew he had to be in that specific cell, know exactly where that pipe led. And that was the one pipe that led out of the building. And it really was a very, it was a very fortunate circumstance for him. And, and the fact that the concrete could be tunneled through at all, it's, I mean, yes, of, of course, I don't think you could argue. He certainly had more bad luck than he had good in this film. But what goes around does come around, I think, is certainly one of the core themes of the movie. You know, he got awful luck in the beginning and pretty damn good luck to have his escape. And he gets off absolutely scot-free. He escapes from a high security prison and they never, ever, ever find him. And he escapes not only with that, but with hundreds of thousands of dollars of Warden Norton's money. Like he, I mean, certainly it's not all luck. It's certainly his own machinations, his own intelligence. But, and I, I always found it funny how, um, for perhaps the most unrealistic thing in this film is how Tim Robbins' character, like you said, he's like six five, somehow fit into Warden Warden Norton's shoes, who he probably had 
nine or 10 inches on the guy. I can't imagine they had the same shoe size. I, that's just a little thing, but I, I always just find that rather funny, but it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting, I mean, yeah, I think you, you can view this movie in a lot of ways, but I do think, you know, one of the reasons why this movie is so widely, it's not just widely critically acclaimed is critically acclaimed, but why it's very, very popular. Why it's the highest rated movie on IMBD, which is rated by fans ever is because I think it does leave people in general with a feeling of hope. And I think it does leave people feeling better than the beginning of the movie. The beginning of the movie is all crap. It's Andy, like his, th- that close up on Tim Robbins's face when he finds out his sentence is just, it's so brutal and so awful. But you conflict that with the zoom in on his face when he's outside and the rain is pouring on him and he strips off his shirt and Red says behind him, Andy Dufresne, the man who climbed through 500 yards of foul and came out clean on the other side. And these, I don't know, I just feel like, yes, I think if you were to measure the movie objectively, objectively, it is a movie that is pretty depressing because objectively it has a lot of depressing things in it. But I think if you kind of just let the emotions of the movie wash over you, and obviously this is different for everybody. I'm not saying that your interpretation is wrong or anything like that. I think part of the reason why this movie is so popular is because it did inspire hope in a lot of people. So and I guess moving on from that, um, where did I want to go with that? Yeah, just I think a part of the movie that I does think gets a little over overlooked is the set of the movie, which it was shot in Mansfield, Ohio, which is about was like forty five minutes south from here, and it's it just the prison is so fantastic. It was shot in a real prison, of course, and but I just think. In the library set, and just, I think every set really makes you never, I think, even for a second, question that you're in a prison in the 50s. And th- this goes down to the uniforms are fantastic, not just the prisoner uniforms, but also the guards, the uniforms the guards wear. And for the short moments you're outside, they feel like that, that looks like what it would be like in the 70s or whatever. But I just think like these little things that I think just elevate this movie from great to fantastic, like these uniforms, the set, the way they talk, like the vernacular they use. I think all of this kind of comes together and makes a movie that's really honestly, I think special in the way in in its attention to detail. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's so many great things you can say about this film, you know, from the screenplay by who originally Stephen King, who wrote the novel, obviously the novella, I should say. And then to the acting, especially that of Robbins and Freeman. And then, of course, the cinematography by Deakins. You know, I could go on and on about how much I love Deakins, as I mentioned earlier in the film. He's just he's synonymous with greatness. There's not much else to be said. I feel like he really immersed us into every scene. He really got us into the faces of those that we were we were getting into the heads of. And then he really got us uh, far away from those that we were not supposed to really identify with. But you know, there's it is really a great film. It's gone down in history, obviously, like you said, critically and just popular uh, popularity wise. It's just it's it's gone down as one of the greatest films of all time for a number of reasons. And it was probably in my book, top three of 1994 uh, among Pulp, Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. I'd probably place it at two behind Pulp Fiction, um, even though Forrest Gump obviously took away best picture that year. But, you know. It's just, it's a fantastic film. I don't think there's really much, much else to be said from that standpoint. Um, is there anything else that you have that you want to add? Um, 
I I think I've I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, I think just one performance. Just just the we we have definitely touched a lot on Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. I think um, Bob Gunn as Warden Norton and William Sadler as sorry not William Sadler Clancy Brown as Byron Hadley are just fantastic in this movie. I think the mm-hmm. casting with them, Clancy Brown especially, he just kind of looks evil. Like he looks like an evil prison guard. I think. And he plays that extremely well. You really get the sense that he enjoys beating up on people like a lot. And 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 Bob Gunton, you just get the sense that he's this holier than thou. He's this, he's the ultimate hypocrite. He violates every Bible passage in the book. I mean, he kills people strictly. He kills people for as petty a reason as keeping his lap dog that does his like taxes and like funnels his money through like that's absurd there's no good reason to kill people of course but it's an extremely petty reason i think as a character he's great i think bob gunton plays him fantastically and i love that line he has that's unique to the movie as well i want him found not after activist not tomorrow now i I love that it's and then he starts breaking down he starts he calls that woman like fuzzy britches what do you have to say Oh God, it's so fantastic, and huh. his performance in general is great. And Clancy Brown's is really great. I love his up on the rooftop. We'll get him, boys. This this guy's having an accident. He's about to kill Andy Dufresne, and he's just like fine with it, which is in the book. And Hadley's a pretty damn bad man in the book, but it's just how much he enjoys and like his he he plays the character fantastically. And I think he uh, both both actors, I would say add a lot to the characters that are written for them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the actors added so much to this film. I I mean, like I've said too often in this podcast, I couldn't really see any of the actors being replaced by somebody else because they did such a splendid job. And obviously, like you mentioned, the screenplay was written almost for these actors to, to, to say. These lines were written for these actors to say almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a note, I, I found it interesting. Um, other other stars that tried out for the role of Andy, Tom Hanks, Kevin Costner, Thomas Newman, and this is my favorite one, Tom Cruise. Oh, oh my goodness. How, how it would be, I just couldn't imagine it. I mean, even Tom Hanks, maybe, but Tom Cruise is Andy Dufresne. I don't know. It just was very yeah, interesting. He, yeah, even Hanks would have been, he would have been a more strong character, more identifiable, I guess. He's kind of the everyman of our age, much like Jimmy Stewart was of the 40s and 50s and the late 30s, of course. But, yeah, Tim Robbins just played that perfectly. He, he's just – he's so good at the timid character that really goes in the background until you you kind of actually start paying attention to him. He just did so well. So I was really happy with the the casting director, whoever, whoever they were on in this film. All right. Well, I think uh, unless you have anything else to say, I think we can move on to our favorite. Um, I mean, we can honestly, I, I think we, we might have different favorite performances for this one. Do you want to just you can just say which one you would say is your favorite performance? Because we've already talked about the performances quite a bit. What would you say is your favorite performance? Uh, sure. My my favorite performance is definitely Morgan Freeman. I thought he did fantastic. Uh, I, I mean, much like I can't see anybody else playing. Dufresne besides Robbins I can't see anybody playing red besides Morgan Freeman I thought this was probably my favorite role he's ever played so I I 
can't I can't say anything bad about this role. It, it was my favorite in the entire film. I would. It's tough for me because there are so many terrific performances in this one, and so I just want to. I kind of want to use mine to bring up one. It's a very short performance, but I think it's played very well. Um, Bill Bowenender plays Elmo Blatch, who is that convict who's actually guilty of what Andy did. And that little, that scene with him is just so chilling. And I think like him laughing about the crime. And I mean, it's obviously, it's only like maybe 45 seconds of screen time. And perhaps it's not fair for me to give him that just based on that, but he performed, he played the character so well. And he's just this character who's just criminally insane. And like how bad a man you have to be to laugh about the death of two innocent people who, and it ultimately got pinned on another innocent person. So basically you ruined three lives in one fell swoop and you're laughing about it. And it's just, he just performs that so very well. So yeah, I would say that would be my favorite performance. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. Such a fantastic performance. Um, so what would you say would be your favorite scene in the film? Favorite scene. Uh, I would say my favorite scene has to be, it, it's, it's definitely, the, the arrest scene when Hadley gets arrested. An interesting note in that, in the year where they get arrested, that was the first year that the Miranda rights were instituted, which is why you see the cop reading his Miranda rights, which he would usually have memorized from a piece of paper and Hadley kind of like being confused at what's going on at first. So that's an interesting, like that attention to detail is obviously amazing. And Hadley, you know, being accepting, but then, oh God, and then the, the camera pans to his his judgment cometh and right soon. And then he opens up behind that. And he, I already mentioned all this, but that scene, it's just, it's hard not to feel excited and hard not to feel just, maybe perhaps not joy, but just the catharsis in that scene of these two men who have, when you witnessed one man beat a man to death for crying and another man kill a man because he was telling the truth and have a man killed at least. And these two men who are just absolutely irredeemable and finally get Warden Newton, Warden Norton's suicide to finally cap it off. And it was, uh, it, it's, it's just such a, it's a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic scene. Um, certainly my favorite. Um, what would you say is your favorite scene, Mike? Um, you know, I obviously, I'm a cinema lover. So one of my favorite scenes is when they're watching the Rita Hayworth film and waiting for her to flip her hair. I thought that was that was a really fun scene because it gets everybody in the in the joint all excited. Um, and it, it's a very dark portion that follows. But afterwards, when um, when Andy gets beaten up by the sisters because he won't accept whatever Boggs test to give him for his mouth, it, whatever that was, was undisclosed. We have no idea. But then, of course, Andy gets beaten up. And then immediately after that, Boggs gets beaten up. So. I thought that that was a very fun scene from that aspect. It's not incredibly enjoyable, but it's it's fun because of Rita Hayworth's hair flip, and it's fun because we get to see Boggs beaten up. I, I thought that, that was a probably my favorite scene in the film. Yeah, absolutely. I, I enjoyed that one quite a bit. That, that, that chain of events is certainly – it kind of marks the end of The Sisters, which I think I speak for anybody who's ever watched the movie. We No one's sorry to see the sister portion of that movie come to an end and i guess going off of that what would you say is your favorite shot in the movie um so i mentioned earlier about how i love um i love that one shot that deacons did above the whole prison early on i love that shot a lot that might be my favorite shot 
it would be either that one or the very last shot of the film. It's it's kind of panning down on the on the beach where Red's walking up to Andy. And at first we only see Red, but then we of course see Andy working on the boat. So it's just it's such a fun film. It's like that that scene is just so so good. That that I'm sorry, not even a fun film, more of just a fun scene right there. Um, but I love that shot when they pan down to Andy and they reveal that they're really making it out of there together. And maybe like you've mentioned earlier, there is a slight sense of hope somewhere in life, even even as, though it may be difficult for them. It finally it leaves the viewer with some hope at least. So that's probably my favorite shot. What's yours? I've mentioned a couple already. Um, the shot of the gentleman cometh and writes this soon. The shot of your right warden, salvation does lie within. Those are two terrific ones in a terrific scene. Um, I also love the shot of it going up from him when he's ripping his shirt off and looking up into the air. You know, it's the it's the poster shot. Yeah. But honestly, I think my favorite shot of the film is red is red sitting in the bus. It's it's the last. It's it's the I hope scene when he's saying. I hope the Pacific is as blue as my dreams. I hope. And that's the end of the, it's, it, it marks the end of the um, novella and it marks pretty much the end of the movie, except for that final shot. I think the movie could have ended very well with probably would have saved him a little bit of money because they had to shoot at the Virgin islands for that last shot. It could have honestly ended with him on the bus, just driving along. Cause like you really do get that sense that, you know, even if, like he he knows what he's doing for for the first time in his life he has a sense of purpose and he's driven and he's going he, you know he might not cross the border he might not get to Andy but he might and that's enough to keep on living and you know they they add that last scene which i do think is a good way to tie the movie together but i think that scene in and of itself with red in the bus not scene sorry that shot of the bus slowly disappearing over the countryside is almost certainly my favorite shot of the movie. And here's probably the hardest question. What would you say is your favorite line in the movie? So I put down a few lines. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to steal any of yours. I put down two that I thought were probably my favorite one by red and one by Andy. Um, I'll give you Andy's first, just because I love red so much. Andy, when, when Andy finally is starting to do the dirty work for the, the warden, He's in the library arranging books with Red, and he says, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as, as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. So that was that was a de- definitely a funny line. You know, obviously, you got Morgan Freeman's character, Red, laughing, because it's true. You know, Andy didn't do anything on the outside. He had to wait till he got in the clink to actually become a crook. So that was that was a fun line. And then probably my favorite line in the film, is when Red says, they send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. And, you know, that's really synonymous with the two characters that escape or that that leave legally, um, Brooks and Red, especially for Brooks, you know, they sent him there for life, and they took everything he had. They took every last ounce of energy out of that man, you know. At the end, he's noted to have arthritis. He's known to be kind of a frail man. He can't even really do the the grocery bagging at the store simply because he's so old and he's so behind on everything. He doesn't really doesn't really have anything else to give the, the world. He's just a poor old man that really doesn't have anything else. But they took Shawshank took everything he had, every ounce of life out of that poor man. And that's why he had to just he, he gave up at the end. 
So that's probably my favorite line of the film. What about you? Yeah, um, I, lo- I love that one. That it, it also it, it pokes fun at certainly the futility of the prison system in general. Like if when you think about it, the amount of crime that happens within prison systems, like if an innocent man were ever sent there, they would basically have to break the law just to survive, which, of course, Andy does. And so doesn't that make you think, why do we run prison systems like this at all? And I certainly the novel is a criticism of that. Not a central theme of the book. It's certainly not a political book, but it's certainly it's poking fun at it at the very least. That's that, that's a terrific line. Um, I think I'll break mine up into two because I do. I actually now that I think about it, I do have two. I mean, there are so many. I'm going to try to ignore. It's hard because pretty much all of Andy's lines are from Stephen King. Yeah. So, I mean, get busy living, get busy dying is, of course, probably the line that this movie is most well known for. Yeah. It's still said widely. I mean, and, and this, it wasn't created by this movie. It was in the book. I think the Andy line that I think resonates with me the most would be in that line with um, with Red. He, he writes something along the lines of, this is an exact quote. He says, hope is, a, hope is a good thing, Red. Maybe the best of things. And truly good things never die. And it's just that kind of that idea that even if you do put, because everyone basically, he had everything against him, Andy did. There's really no reason why he shouldn't have been depressed and killed himself within a month of the joint, but he stayed through it and it ended up paying off. And I think that is really is reflective of that. And then my favorite red line, this is somewhat unique to the, to the, um, it's basically, it's a line from the novella with a little added flair because the warden doesn't kill himself in the book. He ends, he actually just loses his job and lives out his life he doesn't even go to jail but it, it's just it's so funny it's the the last thing that went through warden's mind through the warden's mind before the bullet that is was how andy dufresne possibly got the best of them and i just think that's i i love the comeuppance in this movie and i think the payoff that emotional payoff like finally this dude's getting what he deserves is just so fantastic i think that line really does sum it up better than I think any visual ever could, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Well, I guess without further ado, what would you rate this movie out of five? Uh, I'd have to give this one a 4.5 without a doubt. I think for me, this is going to have to be a five. I particularly really like this movie. I just think that this movie is the perfect adaptation and very, very, very rarely does an adaptation of truly great source material, which is what this is, ends up being more beloved than the source material. And I do think that's what happened here. And I guess for all the reasons I've described so far, and just because of how great of an adaptation this is, I think I would have to give it a five out of five. That makes sense. I, I totally understand that. It's a masterpiece without a doubt. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Cousins on Cinema. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next week to hear us review Elim Klimov's 1985 Soviet anti-war film titled Come and See. Please rate and review us wherever you are listening. And until next time, I've been John Salem, my co-host, Michael Kenny. Have a good night.